Let's open our Bibles to the chapter that you read last night in preparation for this assembly. Deuteronomy chapter 9. I hope you enjoyed this unusual chapter. Amen. You wouldn't exactly call this Moses whispering a few sweet nothings to the people of Israel as he told them from beginning to the end of this chapter what a difficult people they had been and how often they had provoked the Lord. It may be a strange chapter to your minds as to why I would have had you read it, but I want you to see the righteousness of God in it and the basis for that righteousness. The people of Israel were the church of God of the Old Testament. They're called the church that was in the wilderness. They're comparable to us. And I hope that it doesn't take much on our parts to find ourselves their superiors in loving God. And we should be able to make that comparison, and we should do it gladly, that we love the Lord certainly more than they do, and we wouldn't be so faithless that when our leader, after delivering us from Egypt, would go into a mountain that was all on fire and looking like a blast furnace, that with inside of six weeks we would make a molten calf and worship it. The fact that you may get a little discouraged from time to time is nothing like putting a molten calf up in your backyard and having a drunken dancing orgy around it like Israel did. They were a stiff-necked people, so when the Bible says that about them, it's not just a metaphorical expression that they weren't the best. They were the worst. They were horrible. And so Moses would say things like this about his own nation. Verse 24, Ye have been rebellious against the Lord from the day that I knew you. Now that's just hard language, but that's what Moses said about them. That's their pastor speaking about a nation and a church. Ye have been rebellious against the Lord from the day that I knew you. And he has to describe three different events when he fasted 40 days and 40 nights just to preserve them alive because God had said he would destroy them utterly. Now when we come over here to the first part of the chapter, and he addresses these people before he dies, He tells them in verse 4, Speak not thou in thine heart. After that the Lord thy God hath cast them out from before thee, saying, For my righteousness the Lord hath brought me in to possess this land. Don't say that. It is proper to say that in certain circumstances. But these people could not say that because they were never righteous. David could say that. And David did say that. And other men said that. And they rightfully said it. But not these people, because they provoked the Lord and were so rebellious and stiff-necked. David sinned, but David didn't sin as a practice every day of his life like the Israelites did. They wandered for 40 years serving false gods and rebelling against Moses time after time after time. And so the Lord is telling them, Don't you dare think in your heart that because of your righteousness, you're getting this land. And then we have the but that explains why God was driving out those nations from before them. But for the wickedness of these nations, the Lord doth drive them out from before thee. Next verse, 5. Not for thy righteousness or for the uprightness of thine heart, dost thou go to possess their land. But for the wickedness of these nations, the Lord thy God doth drive them out from before thee, and 
that he may perform the word which the Lord sware unto thy fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Understand, therefore, that the Lord thy God giveth thee not this good land to possess it for thy righteousness, for thou art a stiff-necked people. Remember and forget not how thou provokest the Lord thy God to wrath in the wilderness. From the day that thou didst depart out of the land of Egypt until ye came unto this place, ye have been rebellious against the Lord. And then Moses goes on to identify several of the singular events in the history of Israel during that 40-year period of time when they did rebel. Here's the church of God. They are about to inherit the land of Canaan. The land of Canaan is a metaphorical picture to us of heaven. On what basis did the church of God get the land of Canaan? God's promises, but His righteousness. God's righteousness to judge the Canaanites for their wickedness and God's righteousness to keep His promises that He had made to their fathers. Do you know on what basis you are going to make it to the real heaven, the literal heaven? On the basis of God's promise in Jesus Christ and the basis of God's promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob because we are the seed of Abraham according to Galatians chapter 3 and the 29th verse. This chapter shows us the righteousness of God, but it shows us an unrighteous church that makes it to the metaphorical heaven. They made it to the promised land by God's righteousness Because when he makes a promise, he's always going to keep that promise, even if when those for whom the promise was made are disobedient. And it's glorious to see his righteousness that way. His righteousness in spewing out the Canaanites is also glorious. You should want that to happen to the Sodomites in our own nation. Because they're wicked in the sight of God. As we had read to us from Psalm 139, Do not I hate them, O Lord, that hate thee. They hate the God of heaven. They hate the standards of the Bible. They are profane and perverse. They're abominable. They are corrupt. They have turned things upside down because God has rewired their minds. It is the simplest of things to figure out that may, that men or males mix with women or females. But they have defied that. Wisdom from God's Word and that wisdom from nature to go about and pursue their own ends. And they were doing that extensively in the land of Canaan as Leviticus 18 and 20 detail in graphic detail. But Deuteronomy 9 tells us that for that wickedness, the righteousness of God was going to come upon them and throw them out of the land. And in God and His righteousness is going to reveal His wrath and His power in the day of judgment upon the vessels of wrath that he hath afore prepared unto that wrath. But at the same time, there's going to be those that he calls vessels of mercy, vessels of honor, that he is going to usher into heaven, and they're not going to get there by their own obedience. The righteousness of God, if it were fully practiced against us, or fully exercised toward us directly, the Bible says, if thou shouldest mark iniquities, who can stand? No one can stand but one, the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's by His obedience that we are made righteous. 
It's by His singular righteousness that we are justified. Romans 5 is so glorious in that effort. Now, I want to look at righteous and just and impartiality as three attributes of God before we go home from this second assembly. But I wanted to start off this way so that you can think about Deuteronomy 9 and realize that God's righteousness has more at stake than just your obedience. There is the obedience of another that has stood in your place. And the righteousness of God stands or falls on God's trust, commitment, and promises in the Lord Jesus Christ. His righteousness doesn't stand or fall based on you. His righteousness doesn't stand or fall on anything but the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's going to stand. The Lord Jesus Christ is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. He saw the travail of His soul and was satisfied. He has made Him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. For by one man's obedience many were made righteous. This is God's righteousness in dealing with us through the Lord Jesus Christ, just like it was God's righteousness dealing with Israel through His promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The fa- these, these people here in Deuteronomy 9, there's no one there except two men older than 40. I mean, older than 60. Excuse me. You understand that? Because everyone over the age of 20 had been killed by wandering around the wilderness and had taken 40 years to do that. So the oldest person here is 60 except for two men named Joshua and Caleb. The rest are 60 and under. They were the 20-year-olds in the day when these some of these events happened. But they weren't better for it. They served false gods there in the wilderness. They rebelled against Moses. Mo- Did Moses say for the last 40 years you people have really been good? He said, no, let me read that verse to you again. I had so much pleasure from reading it. Ye have been rebellious against the Lord from the day that I knew you. Now you would think that when God said, I'm going to kill all your parents from the age of 20 on up over the next 40 years, you would think the younger generation would just be spectacularly righteous. But they're not. They weren't, and they're not. And so God saved them by his own right arm, just like we sang from Isaiah 63 about who is this that comes from far. The Lord himself will save and deliver. And he does through Jesus Christ. And he did through his promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God is righteous. What does that mean? God is good? I hope you know what that means. And I'm sorry that I spent so little time on it and there's so much that could be said about it. You should take a glass of water this afternoon and just look at two parts hydrogen, one part oxygen that is sitting in that glass and think about raising the temperature to 100 centigrade or 212 Fahrenheit and see what happens when it turns to steam. And think about the carpet cleaners that come in and clean your carpets with steam and how the Titanic set out from Liverpool to come to America by, you got it, steam. And how much steam does. And we can lower that to zero centigrade or... 32 Fahrenheit, and what happens to that liquid? It turns into a solid this time, and you can ice skate on it like I did as a child. You can put it in your drink. But if you don't, and you have it between 0 centigrade and 100, or between 32 and 212 Fahrenheit, it's pretty decent, isn't it? It cools your car to get home. You can water your lawn with it. 
you can drink it, you can take a bath with it, and it takes all your waste out to the street and carries it far, far away from your house. God is good. I just wonder, you know, you can do that with every single thing he's created. It's just that water is one of his more flexible creations. And I want you to rejoice in everything that he's been good, but he is righteous. And I want you to delight in his righteousness. His righteousness is not something we fear. His righteousness is something we should be thankful for. If you read Deuteronomy 9 with understanding, his righteousness is not something to fear unless you've been living like a Canaanite and intend to for the rest of your life. Then you should fear his righteousness. But if you have laid hold of the Lord Jesus Christ by faith, then you should love his righteousness because he's going to keep his promises towards you. Because he would be unrighteous not to do so. He would be unrighteous not to remember your work of love. Hebrews 6.10 This is. I want you to look at the positive side of the righteousness of God because as his children, that's how we should look at it. Right. We have this incredible chapter where Moses speaks so poorly of the church in the wilderness, yet they all made it into the land of Canaan because of God's righteousness. Let's go to Psalm 92 and verse 15. Psalm 92 and verse 15. When we say God is righteous, that means he is always doing, expecting, and enforcing that which is right. It is his uprightness, his rectitude, his conformity to the requirements of the divine law, his virtue, his integrity, is what we mean by his righteousness. He always does what is right. In the definition and sight of God, he is God. And so he is self-regulating in his righteousness. Because there is no higher standard of righteousness to regulate or measure God than himself. Psalm 92 and verse 15, to show that the Lord is upright. He is my rock and there is no unrighteousness in him. There is nothing wrong in him. There is only what is right in him. He is upright. And he is righteous. And verse 14 tells us, They shall still bring forth fruit in old age. They shall be fat and flourishing. Why does God bless his church to be in that kind of a condition? To show that the Lord is upright. Not to show that we're upright, but to show that the Lord is upright. He is my rock, and there is no unrighteousness in him. The Bible declares this about God. Look at Psalm 11. Psalm 11. The Lord is righteous. That means he always does what is right as defined by God. He not only does it, he expects it from its creatures and he enforces it in the universe. And that is what we want in a boss. I appreciate some feedback at break time about understanding how the way that we look at a good boss, a good ruler, a good judge, a good father, we include punishment of evildoers. We include instruction and correction. Because a good boss is one who communicates clearly to us and tells us where we're coming short in the performance of our responsibilities. The boss that doesn't tell us what we're doing, good or bad, and so we're always wondering, how am I performing? That's not a good boss. But a good boss tells us when we're doing something wrong, but they do it in a gentle, good, positive spirit, encouraging us in it. And isn't that the Word of God? And though the Lord punishes evildoers, and though He judges sin and wickedness, He is so good 
overall that we call him good. And we call a good boss good, even though that boss fires sluggards. And though sometimes he has to tell us to come into his office, close the door, because he doesn't want anyone else to hear, as he instructs us on what we can do better. And the Lord does that to us all the time in our conscience by his spirit through his word. The Lord is righteous. Psalm 11 and verse 7 puts it this way. For the righteous Lord loveth righteousness. His countenance doth behold the upright. God loves what is right. God loves who is right. God loves the doing of right. And his countenance beholds them favorably and smiles upon them. Because he's righteous. Because he's righteous, it means he hates the unrighteous. Now you say, well, if he hates the unrighteous, then he must hate me. You are forgetting something about his righteousness. In his righteousness, he chose you in Christ Jesus before the world began. So you are not unrighteous in his sight. The only time you ever get unrighteous in his sight is only to some practical extent. And then he chastens you in love for that unrighteousness. And like I taught you earlier today, he may call it damnation, but your damnation is limited to this life, limited to physical things, short-term practical judgments, in order to be saved eternally. Just like Israel. Did God spank them for those 40 years in the wilderness? Indeed. Did he take some of their lives? Yes. Did they make the land of Canaan to the houses filled with good things? Yes. By his righteousness and keeping his promises. And that's how we want to constantly view this. We don't want to see the righteousness of God and know that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God without remembering that the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. As bad as those Israelites were in Deuteronomy 9, they made it to the land of promise. That doesn't mean we try to be bad to get to heaven. That doesn't mean we excuse bad for those that say they're going to heaven. It just comforts us as what the righteousness of God actually is. He is righteous by keeping his commitment to a people based on someone else. And that someone else for us is the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we don't want to fear his righteousness. Look at 1 Samuel 12 and verse 7. 1 Samuel chapter 12. Proper preaching includes preaching about God's righteousness. God does what is right. And he expects it to be done. And he enforces it to be done. And he punishes evildoers because he is righteous. But oh, once he's punished us legally in the Lord Jesus Christ, can he punish us again legally? Oh, not a chance. Well, can he punish us again? If you want to call it punishment, then go ahead and call it punishment. The Bible calls it chastening. And do you know how it defines chastening? I know I'm repeating myself. It defines chastening as love. Yes. And you're not supposed to despise it nor be weary of it. You should be thankful for it and enjoy it. Because in faithfulness, he's giving it to you. 1 Samuel 12, 7. Look Look at Samuel preach to Israel. 1 Samuel 12, 7. Now therefore stand still that I may reason with you before the Lord of all the righteous acts of the Lord, which he did to you and to your fathers. Everything that God did to you was righteous. Sometimes he chastened and took your lives. It was righteous. Sometimes he forgave you and brought you into the land of Canaan. It was righteous. Sometimes he sent fire from heaven and burned up his enemies. It was righteous. But here's Samuel preaching And preaching includes declaring the righteous acts of God. Everything God does is righteous. It is right 
according to his divine standard of what is right. And he is going to judge the world in righteousness. Look at Psalm 9 and verse 8. Psalm 9. The Lord Jesus Christ is going to descend from heaven in flaming fire with his mighty angels to wreak vengeance on them that know not God and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Psalm 9, verse 8, And he shall judge the world in righteousness. He shall minister judgment to the people in uprightness. This is God. This is God coming in judgment. This is how God is going to treat and deal with the world. God will render to every man the righteous judgment for his sins. Ours was judged in the Lord Jesus Christ. If you have run to the Lord Jesus Christ by faith and you have affirmed and confirmed that faith by your works. It's right and it's righteous for God to judge sinners for their sins. And he does so. Election is just and right. What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? That would be the question that would come up in Romans 9, but you had the answer for it. God forbid. No election and predestination to eternal life is righteousness. Well, how can God be righteous in electing and choose, which means to choose some to eternal life and to bypass others? How can he do that? Because he had a substitute in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, and he poured out all his righteousness on Christ in judging our sins in him. He made him to be sin for us, who bore our sins, and he punished our sins in the Lord Jesus Christ. Right. When Once we know God's righteousness and see it in judging the Canaanites that were so flagrantly wicked in the land of Canaan and how he mercifully chastened those Israelites coming out of Egypt but brought the majority of them into Canaan by his righteousness, not by theirs. I hope you heard that from Deuteronomy 9. Do not think in your heart that it's by your righteousness. And he repeats that several times. And he says, remember and do not forget how much you provoked the Lord since the day you came out of Egypt. But you're getting the land because the people there are so wicked. And you're getting the land because God made promise to three men that started your nation that he loved and were his friends, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Well, once you know that God always does what is right, No matter the difficulty or the results of your circumstances, no matter where you find yourself in life, and sometimes we find ourselves in some ugly situations, God is always and only fully righteous. And so we just never blame Him. We never get angry. I told you last Lord's Day how irritating it was to be told by a counselor that because a child now had a little sickness, that it was okay to be angry. No, it's not okay to be angry with the Lord. He is righteous. And He's better than righteous. He's merciful and gracious. Because as that child's mother is prone to tell anyone right now that wants to engage her in conversation, the little child and the parents belong in hell. And a little tiny bit of diabetes and its relatively easy treatment by insulin is nothing in comparison 
He's righteous. He's better than righteous. And so we bless and praise His holy name. If you sin, the Lord's going to be righteous. And He's going to judge you for it. If you're one of the vessels of wrath, you're going to pay for it in hell. And God will show His righteousness through His wrath and His power on you in hell for eternity. If you're one of His elect, He has shown His righteousness in bruising His own Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, in your place. And all He ever does toward you is to chasten you a little bit, calling you into His office, closing the door, and gently showing you where you're wrong so that you can be better and please Him more perfectly. That is as bad as it gets for the child of God. If you sow righteousness, you'll reap it. You know, the more righteous we are as God's children, the more He shows His favor upon us because He is righteous and His countenance doth behold the upright. Look at Hosea chapter 10. Daniel, Hosea, it's the book after Daniel, which is the book after Ezekiel. The big prophet Ezekiel. Daniel, Hosea chapter 10, verse 12. Sow to yourselves in righteousness. Reap in mercy. Break up your fallow ground, for it is time to seek the Lord till He come and rain righteousness upon you. Now this is a metaphorical verse describing a farmer, but this is Hosea warning a nation that had been wicked that if they would sow to themselves in righteousness, as if they were a farmer, they're taking seeds out of righteousness, and if they would reap in mercy by being merciful toward their fellow man, if they would break up their fallow ground by preparing their hearts to seek the Lord, it is time to do so. And here's how you do it. You live righteously. You live mercifully. You break up the fallow ground. What, what does the Lord require of the man that's going to, is it to love, love mercy and to do justly and to walk humbly with your God? Well, here it is in another way, stated right here, till he come and rain righteousness upon you. The Lord's going to come and shower righteousness upon your efforts to be righteous because He loves the righteous. There's so much comfort to learn about God's true righteousness. In Psalm 73, remember Asaph? Was he discouraged at the prosperity of the wicked? But then he went into the house of God and he was reminded of their end. What is their end? Being cast off from God forever. And then he said, aha, their prosperity right now is not worth their future outcome. And as he went into the sanctuary of God, he was reminded, God is ever with me and is going to receive me into his presence at death. That is worth seeing myself suffering a little bit now by cleansing my hands and not participating in the activities of the wicked. All that's explained by having righteousness preached properly in the sanctuary. You know, the... The poor saints of Israel got to hear the Lord Jesus preach righteousness. How did he preach it in Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7? Ye have heard by them of old time. He took the traditions of the Jews and ripped them, that they were contrary to God. And all these common people that knew the Pharisees were hypocrites were comforted and loved the message. It gets to the end and it says they were astonished at his preaching. For he spake as one having authority, not as the scribes and the Pharisees. They loved it. Because he welcomed sinners. Because repentant sinners 
are what God smiles upon because he's righteous. And when we repent, we're declaring that God is righteous. We perverted the way that was right and it did not profit us. And that gives righteous, that gives righteous praise to God and God receives repentant sinners. But those Pharisees would not repent. They went through the outward motions of ceremonial religion. They might wear the scripture in a box on their forehead, but they weren't going to keep it. And the Lord exposed them. And the common people heard him gladly. And the Pharisees didn't dare ask him. They durst not ask him a question after a certain place in the gospel history that we're given. You know, the Lord delivered the the real measure of practical religion. And it's right here in the heart. Because real righteousness doesn't play games. It goes after what is important. And that is the motive in man. What is motivating the, the activity? Just sitting in a pew or taking the Lord's Supper or being baptized is not righteousness by itself. Is there a conscience involved that wants to give God a good answer? Then it's pleasing to the Lord. And the Lord taught that. Look at Matthew chapter 15, where he taught that very plainly. What is your heart like today? Is your heart loving the Canaanites that we live among and their lifestyle? Or does your heart hate them and love the righteousness of God? Does it love to be in the house of God? Does it love to sing praise? Are you thinking about the sound of your voice? Or are you thinking about the praise welling up from your heart, the melody that you're making there? Verse 1 of Matthew 15, Then came to Jesus scribes and Pharisees which were of Jerusalem, saying, Why do thy disciples transgress the tradition of the elders? For they wash not their hands when they eat bread. Well, shame on them. Verse 3, But he answered and said unto them, This is Jesus to the scribes and Pharisees. Why do ye also transgress the commandment of God by your tradition? For God commanded, saying, Honor thy father and mother, and he that curseth father or mother, let him die the death. But ye say, Whosoever shall say to his father or his mother, It is a gift, by whatsoever thou mightest be profited by me, and honor not his father or his mother, he shall be free. Thus have ye made the commandment of God of none effect by your tradition. Ye hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy of you, saying, This people draweth nigh unto me with their mouth, and honoreth me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. But in vain they do worship me, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. They had a commandment that if you had some valuable assets that you did not want to use in the support of your parents, you could just assign it over to the temple and say, it is a gift. I have made a faith promise offering and it's dedicated to the temple. So it's really no longer mine, mom and dad. I don't have any more money to support you. And the Lord just looked right through that with the vision of the righteousness of God and saw the hypocrisy that they were just trying to save their money from spending it for their parents. They didn't have a love of God. They had a hatred for their parents. And Jesus called it not honoring father and mother. The whole point being here is God's righteousness measures us by the heart, not by our outward actions. We always want to remember that because when we're dealing with God's attribute of righteousness, we don't want to play games with ourselves and deceive ourselves thinking that church attendance, putting something in the offering box, being baptized, taking the Lord's Supper once a month is pleasing to God. That is not what is pleasing to God. What is pleasing to God is the 
the righteousness flowing out of our hearts in doing what is right toward our parents. See, notice, God values honoring father and mother and making sure they have three decent meals a day more important than putting on a new annex to the temple. But you'd be surprised what Catholic churches do in poor communities, wouldn't you? They raise up these monstrosities called cathedrals in poor communities at the expense of not only parents but children as well by taking everything they can from the poor people that live there. The opposite of God's measure. It's not how beautiful your cathedral is. It's how righteous your life is. And so we want to remember that when we're thinking about the righteousness of God. You know, the Lord's going to righteously judge everyone who's ever picked on a Christian. The Lord's going to righteously judge everyone who's ever opposed the religion of God in this world. Oh, the righteousness of God. Instead of being afraid of it, will you remember this with me? If there could have been six more found in Sodom, what would God have done? Would have saved Sodom? Gomorrah? Zeboiim? Cities of the Plain? But what if the dad that got them there was really carnally minded? Is he still righteous enough that because his people are involved, he can say something like that with Abraham? When Abraham said, shall not the judge of all the earth do right? What does he do? If you find me ten righteous souls, I'll save the whole place. Is that, That's a wonderfully gracious God. And, I, and we're not even dealing with his grace. We're dealing with his righteousness. We're dealing with his righteousness. Because when Abraham said, Will the Lord destroy the righteous with the wicked? The Lord said, Find me ten, I'll save the whole place. Oh, the righteous carry a lot of weight with the Lord, don't they? Why? Because he's righteous. How was Lot righteous? Was he very righteous practically? No. Was he righteous legally? Yes. Was he righteous in the purpose of God? Yes. And that carried the weight with the Lord. He still brought him out of that city even though there weren't ten. Against his will, he brought him out of that city. Fainting sinner, never forget that when you think about the righteousness of God, he has always viewed you as righteous in his son before he made Adam and Eve. We're supposed to show that same character of righteousness. Do you remember the verses this morning that we're supposed to put on the new man? And put off the old man. That new man is created in righteousness and true holiness. We can live righteously. We can make the choices and do the things that please God by his definition of what is right and what is wrong. Because he's given us a new nature to do that. And we should do it. We are to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. We can seek it. And when we seek it, God smiles upon us. God did not smile upon the the. the generation circulating in the wilderness. He delivered them and he got them into Canaan. But there was a lot of trials and tribulations that beset them. But God can smile on us even practically when we obey him because he is righteous. And when we are living righteously, he will smile by his countenance upon the upright. Look at Second Corinthians chapter 6. 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Why don't we marry unbelievers? 
Why don't we celebrate pagan Roman Catholic holidays? Because God is righteous. That is why. When we come to this passage, 2 Corinthians 6, 14 through 18, it says in the 14th verse, Be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. That's why we don't get married, because we are not of the same size, shape, inclination, strength, or anything with the wicked, so we shouldn't be in a yoke with them. Because we're tied together in a yoke, a yoke being a block of wood that would have two holes for the necks of two oxen, and you put an ox on one side and a collie on the other, it's not going to pull very well. The ox is just going to trample over that, that collie that couldn't pull its own weight through water. In comparison, we don't want to be unequally yoked. So we don't, because the Lord is righteous. And if you keep going down through here, look at what it says in the middle of verse 14. For what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness? So we get away from them. We have to work among them. We can't go out of this world, but while we're in it, we're not of this world. And we don't unnecessarily choose to associate with them. Because what communion hath light with darkness? What concord hath Christ with Belial? Or what part hath he that believeth with an infidel? And what agreement hath the temple of God with idols? Look at these seven questions that are asked. There is total disharmony between us and the world. For ye are the temple of the living God. As God hath said, I will dwell in them and walk in them, and I will be their God. That's the third promise. And they shall be my people. That's the fourth. Wherefore, come out from among them, and be ye separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you five, and will be a father unto you six, and ye shall be my sons and daughters, saith the Lord Almighty, seven. There are seven promises if we will separate ourselves from the unrighteous of this world. Because God is righteous. That's why we don't celebrate Christmas. Because God is righteous. And we want to be righteous like Him by disassociating ourselves from the unrighteousness and the unbelief and the infidelity of idolatry. Because Halloween, which is five weeks away, and because Christ's Mass of the Roman Catholic Church, and because of Astarte Day, and because of St. Valentine's Day being pagan holidays, they are simply whitewashed by the Roman Catholic Church, and we are to have nothing to do with them. We don't want to touch them. We want to be separate from them because God is righteous, and we're going to be righteous to please Him. The earth has corrupted the way of the Lord, and we want to stand against it. And the more the earth corrupts the way of the Lord, the more odd and obvious you're going to be. And it could be frightening for our children and our children's children, but that's why we pray for our nation, that God will continue to give them a haven, that they may lead quiet and peaceable lives in all godliness and honesty. When it says that God is just, it means that God is fair. When I said that God is righteous, and I'm trying to make this as simple as possible, God is right. When we say God is just, God is fair. The Bible declares God to be just. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 32 and righteous, and sometimes they are used interchangeably, righteous and just. Deuteronomy 32, 4, this is a verse that you should love, the way it summarizes several attributes of God. Deuteronomy 32, 4, he is the rock. His work is perfect. 
for all his ways are judgment. A God of truth and without iniquity, just and right is he. Does that verse mean he's righteous? Indeed. Does it say he's just? Indeed. Does it say he's equitable? Indeed. All his ways are judgment. When we use the word judgment in a, in a way like, in a passage like this, it doesn't mean punishment. It means equitable or fair. It's a synonym for righteous or just. It's not using judgment in the sense of punishment, but in the way of good judgment, fair judgment, right judgment, equitable treatment for parties. This is the Lord. This is what the Bible says about him. And this is how he is to be worshipped. Look at Acts chapter 3. Acts chapter 3 as it speaks of the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, God is righteous. I've I've said this once in this sermon already. Let me say it again, though. Hebrews 6.10 tells us that he is not unrighteous to forget your labor of love. We look at the righteousness of God and we tend to veer toward the ditch that says... He'll never forget my sins. But instead, why don't you veer back toward the ditch? We only want the center. We don't want any ditch. Why don't you veer back toward the center by looking at the ditch that says, He will never forget my acts of righteousness. What is wrong with us? If you have sins like the Canaanites... They were all put in the back of the Lord Jesus Christ and paid for by Him. The worst that can happen is we get chastened for some practical sins. But let's let's also remember, He is not unrighteous to forget your labor of love. I don't know why some want to make Him out to be a monster. Because He's not. If he was ever a monster about you, he was monstrous toward the Lord Jesus Christ in bruising him for your sins. And that transaction is 2,000 years past. And long before it took place, he already viewed you as righteous by the covenant of grace made before the world began. Because he chose you in him that you should be holy and without blame before him in love. I want to tell you about your Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you know what his name is in the book of Acts? Acts chapter 3 and verse 14. Acts chapter 3 and verse 14. But ye denied the Holy One. We know that Jesus was truly holy and the just and desired a murderer to be granted unto you. Israel, the wicked Jews, chose a murderer to be delivered to them instead of the Lord Jesus Christ who here is called the just with a capital J because the Lord Jesus Christ as the Son of God was indeed just. Look at Acts chapter 7 and verse 52. Stephen preaching to the Jews, which of the prophets have not your fathers persecuted? And they have slain them which showed before of the coming of the just one. So see right now we're proving that God is just and Jesus Christ is just, they are fair in their dealings with men, and the Bible says so about them. God only, God is not only fair himself, but he enforces his creatures 
to be fair as well. It is men that are not just, and they find fault with God and accuse Him of injustice, which is a lie. Look at Ezekiel chapter 18. It's men that falsely accuse God of not being just. He is just. Ezekiel 18, 29. Yet saith the house of Israel, the way of the Lord is not equal. See, equal or equity or equitable are words comparable to righteousness or to justice. The way of the Lord is not equal. He's not fair. He's not right in the way he deals with men. The house of Israel was saying that in the days of Ezekiel. O house of Israel, are not my ways equal? Are not your ways unequal? Therefore I will judge you. As it goes on to describe, this chapter is because they had a proverb that God hated. The fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. The only reason we're being judged by God is because our dads were bad. And so they're blaming their dads for God's judgment on them. And he takes the whole chapter to explain, if a man who's had a wicked father will live righteously and repent of his sins, I'll have mercy on that man. Are not my ways equal? It's your ways that are unequal. Because you're excusing yourselves in this present generation from being righteous. He is fair. He's always fair. You say, well, if he's fair, he's going to send me to hell. He's better than fair if you're going to start pulling the eternal, legal, and final phase of salvation into this sermon because he punished the Lord Jesus Christ for you. I have to chase you ten times a sermon. I'm getting tired of chasing you. But I'll keep chasing you because it's the joyful sound of the gospel. Right. He is fair. He's, he, he, but he's better than fair in the way that he has saved us. You know, because God is just, he cannot acquit or clear the wicked. And therefore there are vessels of wrath fitted to destruction. Because he must destroy them. But you're not in that number if you've laid hold of the Lord Jesus Christ by faith. God's justice was exalted at Calvary by punishing Jesus Christ for us. So that Romans chapter 3 and verse 26 can say he is just. That's what we're talking about. God is just and the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus. When a person, when a person believes in the Lord Jesus Christ, it shows that God has saved them, drawn them to him, or they wouldn't believe, because no man can come to me except the Father which hath sent me draw him. But when he comes to Christ, it's proof that God is just and a justifier. That man is going to heaven. How can a man go to heaven who's a sinner when there's a just God that must, that must punish every infraction? How does that happen? Because he punished it in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Right. And we could say it over and over again, and we would never have said it enough times. And we'll thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord for eternity. Because we are all going to face the second death. We're going to face a physical death, then we're going to face our second death. But Jesus has delivered us from both. So much so on the first death that it's going to sleep in Jesus. So much so of the second death, we'll never taste of it. He that hath part in the first resurrection on the second, second death hath no power. It just doesn't have anything to do with us. Because God is just. And he punished the Lord Jesus Christ in our place. Well, knowing that God is just, 
What comfort can we draw from that? No matter what difficulties you face, and this is very similar to being to his righteousness, God is always and only and fully just towards you. He has always done justice towards you. He has never been unjust. There's never been injustice in your life except from men. God's righteousness and justice should not cause ungodly fear. It should cause you incredible comfort and confidence because you know he is always going to deal according to his word, always going to deal fairly, always going to deal rightly, and you are in Christ Jesus, so he's always going to deal with you as if in Christ Jesus because that is where you are. And then his righteousness and his justice are not something to fear, but something to be thankful for because that's what locks you up in Christ Jesus. God's righteousness and God's justice stands or falls in Christ our Lord. Right. You can't affect it one bit at all in any legal or final way. The only way you can affect it is practically. The more just you are in your life, the more righteous you are in your life, the more he smiles upon you with his own justice and righteousness towards you. But you will never measure up nearly enough to be righteous to get into heaven by your righteousness. It has to be the righteousness of one for us. Do you know why Armenians like to be Armenians? Because they would rather have their eternal destiny in your hands or in their hands instead of God's hands. Now that, that is a risky proposition. I haven't met him. Please forgive me. You haven't either. I haven't met a man or a woman that I want to trust with my eternal destiny yet. You say, but, well, my mommy loved me so much. She would want me to go to heaven if I died. Yeah, but why don't you come and talk to me about your mommy, and I'll tell you a few more things about her that you're forgetting. I want there to be absolute righteousness that holds me with the Lord Jesus Christ. I want to remind you of David. David numbered Israel, and God came to David in 2 Samuel 24 and said, What do you want? Three years of being chased by your enemies, three months of this, and three days of being in my hands in a pestilence, or something to that effect. It's 2 Samuel 24. David said, That's pretty easy. I want to cast myself into the hands of the Lord. Why didn't he want to be in the hands of man? Because he knew the most just, the the most fair, the most equitable hands to be in were the hands of the Lord. And so he cast himself upon the Lord. 70,000 men died, but that wasn't because of David numbering Israel. That was because those men deserved to die and needed to die before God moved David to number Israel. Let me keep talking about God's justice. Do you know that in the annals of Old Testament history about David, that particular sin is not brought up again? Because God in his justice knew that he had put David under extreme duress to number Israel. It says so. It's 2 Samuel 24.1 compared to 1 Chronicles 21.1 where it says that Satan stood up against Israel and caused David to number them. God turned David over to Satan for that one particular sin so that he would have occasion to judge Israel for sins that he was holding against them as a nation 
and to kill 70,000 men. But because of that, that wasn't brought up again because there was extreme duress. That is just. That is the kind of a fair God, even though 70,000 men lost their lives, and it appeared, if you connected the dots, that you would connect them and say David was at fault for 70,000 men. God did not view it that way. God did view Uriah the Hittite dying because of David's sin. And so God always connected the dots between David and Uriah and Bathsheba. And that is just, because David had himself a harem, and that was aggravated adultery and aggravated murder. Are you thinking with me on how I'm trying to, the righteous, the justice of God? God is just. In Luke chapter 7, a Pharisee invites Jesus to supper. A woman that was a great sinner is there. Who do you want to be your friend? Simon the Pharisee or the woman or Jesus? Look at how the Lord Jesus Christ defended that sinner against the host that night and against all of his friends that were with him. How about the woman taken in adultery? How about his justice? Did he know why she was caught in adultery? Did he understand the intents of their hearts, their motives? Was he going to judge her over them? Was he going to judge them her equal to them? No. He drove them away by their own consciences and then sent her away to go and sin no more. Look at the mercy of God. When I read, the Lord is so fair in all of his dealings with men. Practical forgiveness between men depends on their mood. The the degree and the quickness of you getting forgiveness from another person depends on their mood and how many times you have offended them and how many times you have wronged them and how you bring about your apology. You might not have said it the right way or done it at the right time or I need a little time to think about that. Our responses that men give because men are not just. But when we confess our sins to God, the Bible says if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. Justice only has to do with punishing sins, the fainting-hearted sinner says to me. But I say to you on 1 John 1, 9, it's the justice of God that forgives you your sins because He must forgive you because His justice demands it of Him because your sins were paid for by the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is justice. It's not something to fear. It's something to embrace. When he spanks us and spanks us hard for something that we've done, should we complain? We should be thankful. In faithfulness thou hast afflicted me. Before I was afflicted I went astray. But now have I kept thy word. This is his justice. It is a good thing. It is something we should be thankful for. Are you just? Some of you are going to go to work tomorrow and you will have people working for you. Does the Bible have anything to say about that? How about Ephesians chapter 6, and I'm closing. Ephesians chapter 6, and the ninth verse. And ye masters, do the same things unto them. That's after four verses describing how servants should obey masters. As unto the Lord, with fervent hearts. Masters, do the same things unto them, forbearing, threatening, 
knowing that your master also is in heaven, neither is there any respect of persons with him. If we turn over a few pages to its fraternal twin, in the word of God, Colossians 4.1, Masters, give unto your servants that which is just and equal, knowing that ye also have a master in heaven. Every decision you make as an employer, as a manager of people, you better do it very fairly. Because God is calling on you to be just. And if you do it out of conscience toward God, you're proving that you've had a change in your nature. Because you're doing something that may be unpopular in the world, but you're doing it because it pleases God, which shows you being a partaker of the divine nature, because God is just, and you're showing some of that justness. So let's be just people. Let's be fair in all our dealings. Look at Deuteronomy 25. Deuteronomy 25, this affects our lives so much. When you buy and sell, everything you do, when you loan, when you go do a job for someone, and you tell them you're going to do a certain thing, do you do everything you said you would do? Do you do everything they thought? you said you would do? Do you, you, Are you whole in the matter? Because the Lord looks at it this way, and, he, and this is the example that I'll use from the Bible. It's His law about being just. At verse 13 of Deuteronomy 25, Thou shalt not have in thy bag divers weights. Different weights. A great and a small. You know, they had to carry around their devices for weighing in those days for purchasing things that were sold by weight. Verse 14, thou shalt not have in thine house divers measures, things that were sold by length, a great and a small. But thou shalt have a perfect and just weight, a perfect and just measure shalt thou have, that thy days may be lengthened in the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee. For all that do such things, using improper measurements, or cheating on any kind of a business transaction, and all that do unrighteously, notice the words that are used here, are an abomination unto the Lord thy God. Why is it an abomination that if you pump gas, and you are paying per gallon, and you get 127 fluid ounces, it's an abomination, because God is just. You should embrace His justice. His justice is the foundation for so much of our economy. But let's not worry about our economy. Let's not worry about the Bureau of measurement, Measurements. Let's worry about you and me in all of our dealings. Right. Are we totally fair? Are we above fair? Are we very just? Do we always give a full day's work, a full hour's work? Do we return money that is overpaid to us? Do we pay on time? Or do we use, how just are we? Are we using grace periods? Grace periods are not just. Because grace and just are not the same thing. I don't want to get any, I don't want to take any more time on that. If you use the grace period, unless it was an accident, you're stealing. It's that simple. If you want to be just and you want to have God bless you, then always be just. The grace period is not there. Grace does not mean take this whenever you want to. It just means you made an accident. And because we're just and fair, we'll let you slide for a little while because we know that some of you are stupid sometimes. It's not take advantage of us. They have calculated their payments by the payment due date. And so everywhere you look, can you be just? 
when we read about the goodness of God and we read about God's righteousness and we read about his justice, how do we know that God is good is going to be good toward us, particularly, personally, righteous toward us and just toward us? By laying hold of the Lord Jesus Christ and then being good, doing good to those that we can do good to, including our enemies, as the Bible tells us, being righteous in all of our dealings. He that doeth righteousness is righteous, 1 John 2.29 teaches us. And then being just. And just is being fair towards your employees, towards your children, always disciplining according to their age, properly, an appropriate number of stripes, if they deserve stripes at all for what they've done. Always being just, including right down to your measurements and what you pay for, what you offer for a vehicle. Remember, it is not, it is not, saith the buyer. And then he goeth his way and boasteth. That's not being just. You're being a liar and a thief when you do that. Because you'll immediately tell somebody else how you got a good deal, but you didn't tell the person that you were buying it from, did you know you're selling this too cheap? But that's what you tell the next person that you talk to. All these things are how we show that we're just. And do you know what makes us talk this way and do things the right way? Because we fear God. We don't do it to earn our way to heaven. We do it because God is just, therefore we want to be just. And God has given us a new nature where we can be just. And we want to be just. May the Lord bless us to understand how good God is, how righteous He is, His righteousness and justice stand and fall in Christ. And His righteousness and justice outside of the, or through the Lord Jesus Christ beyond our eternal salvation, He'll smile upon us for our righteousness. And sometimes He'll smile upon us in spite of it because He's so merciful, but that's not an attribute that we've looked at today. Remember Israel. Why did they get the land? Because the people there were so wicked in a legal, final way, and because God had made promise that he would bring them into the land of promise. And God has made that promise for us in the Lord Jesus Christ before the world began. May the Lord bless the preaching of his word.